Well, Annie, I'm glad that you got to read a passage that you needed today, that was good for you today. And we all hope that that happens for us. And it's actually a very good lead-in to, uh, we're going to spend a little time in our pairing and sharing time, and then I'll do some reflecting. Um, because uh, not just this reading, but some of the other readings we could have read today from the lectionary, which I'll refer to in a little bit, uh, made me think about this question. A few other influences you'll hear about. Um, does the Bible matter any, anymore? Okay. Um, and so, uh, for those not yet familiar with pairing and sharing time, what we do is we get together, uh, we, we just find someone, pick someone as a partner or someone other than your, your uh, primary partner or spouse, um, and we just have conversation. Um, and I think it's both meaningful, some of the things that come out of the conversations that I've been involved in and heard about, um, but on top of that, another important reason we're doing it is on things that really matter. We want to get to know each other and build each other, build up um, understanding and trust with one another to strengthen the bonds of who we are as a community, both for ourselves, before God, and for the wider community as well. Um, so here's the couple questions that are in your bulletin for you to find a partner and, and share about. They're kind of open-ended. Hopefully they'll just spur conversation. Um, and there's no right answers, right, to these questions, for you anyway. Um, first one is, what is the Bible? So, somebody asked you on an elevator, what is the Bible, what would you say? Um, and second one is, do you believe in the Bible? And if yes, what does that mean? Um, so, find a partner, um, and I'm always the... I'm always the odd man out, so to speak. In other words, if we end up with an odd number, I'll, I'll be looking for who doesn't get paired up and join you. Um, so find a partner and sit for a few minutes and have some conversation. Introduce yourselves if you don't know each other. I invite you to... Uh, Bring to a conclusion the brilliant thought that is coming out of your mouth right now as we come back together. So I may need your help today. Hope you had some good conversations. Because the more I got into preparing for this week, um, well, you've been through the experience, right, where something is just rumbling through you so much you're not sure you can stay focused or uh, stay appropriate or whatever. Um, I'm feeling a little bit of that today. Um, there's probably uh, 20 sermons or a series in the kind of things that are flowing through me, but I'm going to try to keep this a little bit focused. But it starts with something that just, finally, I just need to just say it out loud. So do you know who's coming to, who's in the Northwest already this week and is coming to the Spokane area? This week? Can you read that? Decision America Tour from Franklin Graham. Is everybody calm? You know, I, I tried actually when I realized he was coming. My, my first instincts, because if you know me, you'll get this. My first instincts were to 
research all the outrageous things he's ever said and organize a protest. <laughs> Sorry, that was way too much, way too much work to do. Um, but his decision America tour, especially in the Pacific Northwest, is because we have totally gone awry out here. We're just totally secularists and we're part of helping lose America out here and he's coming to give us the opportunity um, to meet Jesus Christ and to be saved and hopefully save the country. Um, that, that, that is his, his hope. Um, I did watch some things, read some things from him online and I watched him do an interview on a Catholic program where this priest was interviewing him. Um, I think it's related to America Magazine, which is a Catholic magazine. And, um, and he was talking about how the uh, religion of Islam is inherently a violent religion. And I'm just going crazy like, well, just because some people commit violence in its name doesn't make it a violent religion. Just look at our Christian past, whether you want to go back to the Crusades or uh, the, the violence that will happen in the 19th century through justifying slavery through the Bible um, and then doing violence to people as a result of that. Um, there's, I could go on and on and on. And there are many, many, many stories. But um, at some point, um, what's real here? What, is, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What is really real? Is this stuff really real? He's going to come and he's going to tell people exactly what the Bible means and there's no other interpretation of it than what he's going to tell you. And others are going astray. Um, I've gotten letters here in this church from people who are Franklin Graham type of supporters basically detailing um, exactly where we are wrong on everything. Um, and so... You know, I come today with that energy boiling through me and with the, the, the wanting to understand how, how do we figure out when it comes to being a follower of Jesus what is fantasy and what is real. And the Bible, one of the reasons I wanted you to talk about it, is it just fantasy stories or is it real? Now, there's some stories we didn't read that were in our lectionary today. If you look at the bottom of your bulletin, um, and I always encourage you to spend some time with the ones that we don't necessarily read in church, um, there's the Exodus 16 story, which is the story about uh, the Lord telling Moses that he's going to take care of the people who are on this 40-year journey to the Promised Land, not that they knew that it was going to be 40 years at that time, um, that it, that he was going to give them bread from heaven. Um, and when you read the story, you find out that after the dew goes out the next morning, um, that there's a flaky, fine flaky substance that the people say doesn't look like bread. It's not real bread. But um, it sustained them and they ate it. Is that real? Or is that fantasy? What is the Bible doing here? Um, then we have the follow-up, the connecting story to it uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John. The whole sixth chapter, which is a very long chapter in John, is about Jesus being the bread of life. And that's what we hear in this reading. We hear 
Jesus basically saying to people who he's been feeding and ministering to, um, you keep following me because all you really want is just the actual bread. But there's something more enduring if you want it that will sustain you and nourish you. And therefore, instead of the manna coming down from heaven, when the dew lifts, there it is. Now it's embodied. It's come, John tells us, in Jesus, who is the bread of life. Now, is that fantasy? Is that real? What's going on here? Do note that John's Gospel, written after all the other Gospels that we have, were written long after. Um, None of the other Gospel writers seem to know that Jesus called himself the bread of life. Um, so is this a story with some meaning? Or is this something that really happened? Um, you know, then we come to the reading Annie needed today. The Ephesians 4 reading. And there's a lot in that reading. And I'm not going to get to it all today. I'm going to say something about it now and touch on it back near the end again. Um, but the part that stopped me was... Um, I'm actually going to go to it here. Uh, it is in verse uh, 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope for your calling, um, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. All right. I've always loved that. It's so visionary. We're all connected. Everything's one. Anyone here think that's real? Everything's one? Everything's working together? You know? Is this fantasy? Is this a vision that can never be attained? Or is this a deeper reality that's being talked about that is more real than the reality we think we experience? What is going on here? So... Fantasyland time. This has been coming for a long time. People in power have always created their own stories, morphing from reality to creating another story so that they can control the situation and control the people who are under them. But now we live in a culture of innovation and technology and images that have affected that have infected all of us and even, even put us in the situation where we think a fantasy creation is reality and where we think reality is a fantasy creation. It seems everywhere now. I remember first hearing about this growing problem almost a quarter of a century ago now, almost, not quite. Uh, you remember when Black Hawk Down movie came out? Um, they talked to some of the real people from that book and movie that they talked about who grew up playing, uh, you know, military-style video games. Um, nowhere near as impressive as the ones I'm sure you can get today. I don't really play them. Um, but in some of the interviews they did, what they found out was that many of these soldiers who were... Um, basically, uh, in these war situations, took them a while to realize that it was real and not just a video game. Isn't that hard to imagine? 
I mean, war is a horrible thing. Because now they're controlling drones. It must be even more complicated. So what is real? What is fantasy? And is the Bible real? Is it fantasy? Is God real? Is God fantasy? It's all jumbled up today. And even for those of us looking for it, someone can present something in front of us filled with images and enticements. And we think it's real, and then we find out later it's just all made up. In a time when the realities we create, the fantasies we, we create, seem more real than the reality of our existence, what does religion have to say? What does it mean that the Bible is true? You know, all religion is based on fantastical kinds of stories on its face, right? You know, we've all done it. We've looked at somebody else's religion and we say, couldn't come up. That couldn't have happened. You know? Um, some religions have begun on having a prediction of when the end times were going to happen. Some based on fantastic miracle stories about um, where something is buried or whatever. I mean, there's a million of them out there. Of course, you know, we have this manna in the desert. And uh, we have a a Jesus who's fully human, fully divine, walking the earth, um, who, although crucified on a cross, rises from the dead. You know, if you don't, if you don't grow up with this or haven't been uh, kind of taught into it, and maybe for some of us even here, it can at times seem very fantastical. What's real? What's fantasy? So, does this mean it's all made up? Since the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, and now the technology revolution, we have so many sources of knowledge. Of course, we've gotten it all jumbled up so much, we sometimes don't even believe the first-hand sources of knowledge that we have. Things that have been looked at, studied, using solid method. And we choose not to believe it. And one of the things in my lifetime I remember hearing, long before it got as bad as it has gotten now, was, you know, the, the conspiracy theory that we never landed on the moon, it was just in the Arizona desert, you know? And when you think about how would you prove that they really landed on the moon, you have to trust somebody to, to prove that, don't you? Because do you have first-hand knowledge? Were you there? Did you see more than an image on a screen? You know? It is so easy to get it all twisted up and figure out what to do. So, do we need the stories of religion to understand our world anymore? Do we need the stories of religion that come through our Bible to understand the world anymore? Or maybe we're past that. Facts, truth, meaning. Is the Bible reality-based? One of the 
images of God, and I, for me, it's embedded in the Bible when you read the whole Bible, but um, it's been talked about in many different scholars over the years, is that God is ultimate reality. And that's one that works for me. Whatever is really, really, really real, that's where God is. In the end, the stories and the images of God and God's relationship with creation and humanity are only helpful if they match reality at its core. If they call us to the deeper realities of life and of identity, of existence. But how do we know in this confusing time that our perception really points us towards reality or not? That's another thing that's come up in most of our lifetimes is people manipulating things so that what we perceive to be real isn't really real, but eventually they say perception is reality. Do you believe that? How do we get through that? How do we get to the facts that we base our groundedness on? Who do we trust? What methods do we trust? For me, I can really just only say this for me right now. This is what keeps me rooted in a place like this. To be on a spiritual journey is to be on a journey to work through all the clouding and misting and misrepresenting and all of that that happens. To work through all the, the fear that's instilled in our culture that, that gets within me that helps distort what is really real. And to make a decision to be focused on understanding what's really real. That means, what's really real about me? What do I need to do to, do, to figure that out? Maybe I need therapy. Maybe I need a community support group. Whatever it is, what is really real about me? Not some created image of me. Not what somebody else thinks of me. Not my own fears uh, about myself. But what is really the truth about who I am in my core identity? And what is really true about the people around me? What's really true about what's going on in our community in Colville? Learning the skills to see what's really real. And when I come back to the Bible, it is I can't tell you all the reasons why, but the Bible seems to center me back on reality. But that's why I get so mad at this kind of stuff. Because I think there's so much presented about being a follower of Jesus and about the Bible that is not pointing people towards reality. It's pointing towards them getting in line with a certain way of thinking, otherwise you're going to go to hell. It's about getting yourself lifted up so that others could be pushed down. That's not where, that's not what this is about for me. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not for me what the Bible is about. And the first thing you have to do 
for the Bible to be a centering point is you have to stop using it to prove a point or to further your own agenda. Once we do that, we're pushing it out there. We're creating an alternate reality, as they say. We need to receive it into our full selves, the stories that are there. We need to let it be in conversation with who we really are. So we go back to the Ephesians reading. It kind of points to this, Paul does, while he's sitting there in prison with plenty of time to get centered. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. That could have been written yesterday. So if we're not going to be children, we need to take charge of the reality of who we are. We need to take charge of the sources that can help center us in this reality that we can trust. We need to ask hard questions about how we've been unwittingly influenced without knowing it by created fantasies of other people or other organizations or other marketing schemes or whatever it might be. And from that, once we get that kind of reality-based centering, then we can do, he says in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into Jesus, into God, into Christ. Frankly, you know, we have a primary election coming up on Tuesday. It's kind of like voting. You can't just open the ballot. And you have to do some work if you want to know what's really going on with the people who want to represent us. To be reality-based in our faith today, with all the scheming that's going on out there, trying to push us to and fro, and manipulate us and control us and get our money even for the cause, We've got to figure out, how is my life focused on understanding who I am, understanding this world I live in and how it works. To me, as I said, God is ultimate reality. God is ultimately the God of this love creation. God is ultimately discoverable by deeply immersing ourselves in what is really real, not what has been manipulated for our benefit. And I suppose it's happened throughout history, but we're in a particularly challenging time in the merging of fantasies and realities. And we all need our fantasies to get away from certain things at times, I get that. But when it's imbuing every part of life, those of us who sit in these pews have to make sure we are reality-based so that we can speak the truth in love, so that we can be part of centering our culture for a better day, for a clearer day, for a more hopeful time.